Welcome to Tuesdays with Merton. My name is Teresa Sandock. I'm a Servite sister from Wisconsin and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Tuesdays with Merton is co-sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are scheduled to run on the second Tuesday of each month. And now I would like to invite Father Dan Horan to introduce our speaker. Dan is a Franciscan friar, a professor of theology at Catholic Theological Union, and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Dan? Thank you, Sister Teresa. It's good to be with everybody. Before I introduce our distinguished uh, speaker this evening, I'd like us to begin with a short prayer from the writings of Thomas Merton. And this comes from a passage in Thoughts and Solitude. And so let us pray. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And the church says, amen. We are delighted to welcome back Father Brian Massengale to the International Thomas Merton Society for this evening's Tuesdays with Merton event. Those of you who are ITMS members may recall when in 2015, Father Massengale delivered the keynote address at the ITMS Centenary Conference at Bellarmine University. His address was inspiring, challenging, and prophetic. Father Mastengale is the James and Nancy Buckman Professor of Theological and Social Ethics at Fordham University, where he also serves as the Senior Ethics Fellow in Fordham's Center for Ethics Education. He is the author of the book, Racial Justice in the Catholic Church, which is without a doubt, one of the most important and influential books on the subject of anti-Black racism and Catholicism that is in print. In addition to his extensive work on the subject of racism, the context of the United States and Catholicism more broadly, his research and teaching in the area of theological ethics includes just so many very important and timely and relevant areas. Key issues such as criminal justice and sexual ethics, HIV AIDS and fuller inclusion of LGBTQ persons in the church and society among so many other areas. Um, we wouldn't have time actually to hear your, uh, your address if we went through all the ways in which your research and teaching and lecturing has impacted the church and scholarship. Father Massengale is the former convener of the Black Catholic Theological Symposium and a former president of the Catholic Theological Society of America. He is also the recipient of numerous awards. Again, we wouldn't have time if I named them all, but I should highlight that among his many awards and achievements are four honorary doctorates, including one from my own academic institution, the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. A teacher, a scholar, a public speaker of international renown, 
Father Massengale is a highly sought after lecturer and a scholar activist of the highest caliber. And we are incredibly fortunate to have him with us this evening. On behalf of the ITMS community, I welcome my colleague and friend from whom I've learned and continue to learn so much, Father Brian Massengale, who will speak with us this evening on the topic, Merton, Malcolm X, and Catholic engagement with Black Lives Matter. Father Brian, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Um, that was just um, generous. And it's even more generous when a friend of yours gives you that kind of an introduction. Um, first, let me um, say thank you to the International Thomas Merton Society uh, for your generous invitation to be here. And I also thank the Burning Center and Catholic Theological Union for their sponsorship of this event and looking forward to our, our conversation together. I also want to apologize for the kind of grainy pixeliness of the screen that you see in front of you. This is the, the, the challenge of living in a New York City apartment where at night there's just no natural light that looks good on the computer screen. So um, this is the peril of Zoom. So we just have to kind of deal with it. Um, I'm gonna share my screen with you because I think it's uh, better to um, look at the PowerPoint. Good. Um, just an overview of what's going to happen for the Zoom weary, and we all are Zoom weary at this point. I'm going to talk a little bit about the origins of the Black Lives Matter movement, and then talk about Catholic engagement with the Black Lives Matter movement, and why we then need to retrieve the wisdom of Malcolm X and Thomas Merton in order to move to a more adequate Catholic engagement with this significant social movement. Um, I want to look at Malcolm X in terms of his representation of a stream of thought or worldview known as Black nationalism, and then look at Thomas Merton and look at his contributions and limitations in terms of his engagement with Malcolm X and his, and his worldview during his lifetime, and then continue with what I believe is the core of Black Lives Matter, and that is the call for Americans and for Christians and of all people of goodwill to enter this, answer the summons of loving blackness. So that's the beginning, the middle and the end. Um, I can't say everything that needs to be said about this topic and the time that we have, but, and I'll probably have to you know, cut some things out, but this is the plan. And if the Holy Spirit has another plan, that's just what's gonna happen. The Black Lives Matter movement is also known as the Movement for Black Lives. And it arose out of the dismay, the frustration, and the righteous anger of African-Americans after the acquittal of an armed vigilante for the 2012 killing of Trayvon Martin, an unarmed teenager who was simply walking home, trying to avoid what he called a creepy adult who was stalking him as he walked, as he walked. One of the co-founders of this movement, um, Alicia Garza, describes its genesis when she writes that Black Lives Matter began after George Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of Trayvon Martin. When he was acquitted, it was like a gut punch. I was literally popping off on Facebook, sending love notes to Black people saying, we're enough, we are enough and we don't deserve to die, and we don't deserve to be shot down in the streets like dogs because someone is effing scared of us. Our presence is important, 
and we matter. Our lives matter. Black lives matter. And Patrice Colliers was like, oh my God, Black Lives Matter. And she put a hashtag in front of it. And that was the origin. Note, excuse me again. I want to call your attention to the fact that I highlighted the fact of sending love notes. From the beginning, this racial justice movement was rooted in a deep love for Black people. I'm going to say that again because it's critical for what's going to come. This movement at its core, Black Lives Matter, is based on the premise that Black lives, that Black bodies are loved and lovable. And because Black bodies are worthy of love, they are deserving of respect and deserve to be treated as valuable and worthwhile. Now, this is important because so often this movement is a social protest against police misconduct and the vastly disproportionate killing of Black persons by police officers. That's true. These, these tragedies capture most of media attention and they galvanize the public protest. But police reform, and more recently, calls for defunding the police, they figure prominently in the platform of Black Lives Matter. But from the beginning, this movement has been about so much more. I want to call attention to the deeper reasons for the systemic disvaluing of Black lives and the wanting killing of Black bodies. This movement strives to make America face the question, why? Why are Black bodies and Black persons treated so callously and so cavalierly? And why is it that white society is not outraged by these deaths? Why is America a place where Black persons must contend with the threat of death for simply sleeping in their homes like Breonna Taylor or for jogging on a public street? or for playing in a park, or for shopping for a toy for their son, for praying in a church, or even for the mere suspicion of a crime. Why? This why question is part of what makes Black Lives Matter so controversial. These acts of violence that generate public protests are only the tip of the issue that preoccupies Black Lives Matter activists. They point to what they consider a deeper reality, namely that these acts express a society that's based on the principle that Black lives ought not matter and should not count as much as white lives. Black Lives Matter activists declare that this anti-Black racism or systemic anti-Blackness is the core reason why anti-Black police violence is both possible and too often excusable. It's why Black lives are taken in circumstances where white lives are not. It is a reason why Black violence is vociferously condemned while white criminality is excused and even praised, just think back to January 6th. Because their slogan, Black Lives Matters, 
challenges this too often unnamed systemic and foundational anti-Blackness. It's often viewed with suspicion, unease, even horror. Now, seen in this light, Black Lives Matter shouldn't be viewed solely as a mere reform movement or as a call for palliative social changes such as body cameras or civilian review boards or an end to qualified immunity. Rather, its aims are much more fundamental. Namely, it strives to create a society where Black lives are valued, where Black bodies are cherished, where Black people are dignified, where Black people are loved. In a word, a world where Black lives matter. Now, it would seem that these goals and ends would be celebrated and supported by the Catholic Church. After all, these aims are consistent with the foundational principle of Catholic social teaching, namely that all lives have intrinsic and equal dignity, value, and worth as images of the one creator God. But Catholic engagement with Black Lives Matter has been hesitant and lukewarm at best. And at worst, it's been intrinsically, intransigently, and virulently opposed to this movement. For example, in their 2018 pastoral letter on racism, Open Wide Our Hearts, when we look at what the bishops wrote, one finds that the phrase Black Lives Matter never appears in the document despite the fact that it came into being in 2013. In fact, if your only understanding of US racism came from this document, you would never know of this movement and of the major role it's played in a country since 2013. Moreover, the phrases white nationalism, white privilege, anti-black racism never appear in the document. Yet these are the major dynamics identified by the Black Lives Matter movement as so pivotal to understanding this country. They're conspicuous by their absence. More telling is how the treatment of black persons by the police is treated in the document. And this section is worth citing in full. It says, it is undeniable, let me just make my notes here. We must admit the plain truth that for many of our fellow citizens who have done nothing wrong, interactions with the police are often fraught with fear and even danger. At the same time, we reject harsh rhetoric that belittles and dehumanizes law enforcement personnel who labor to keep our community safe. We also condemn violent attacks against the police. Note how the violation of black bodies is simply noted as a social fact, as something that is to be admitted. But what is condemned is harsh rhetoric or criticism of police officers, not the unfair treatment of people of color. In fact, the only place the word condemned appears in the whole document is not in relationship to the lack of respect given to black and brown bodies, but to the police. 
We also see the same uh, kind of the same muted kind of rhetoric when we look at how they describe neo-Nazi organizations and, and like the Ku Klux Klan. They affirm that participating or fostering these organizations is sinful, but there's no condemnation of these organizations. The principal concerns of the Black Lives Matter movement are never engaged and are even subtly dismissed by the US bishops and by extension by the Catholic Church. Now this would be bad enough, but this is mild compared to the reception given by, to this movement by Catholics and their leaders during the summer of 2020 in the aftermath of the deaths of Armand Arbery, Rihanna Taylor and George Floyd. The forthright opposition and blatant hostility to the movement is obvious in these incidents. For example, in Wisconsin and Indiana this summer, priests gave homilies in which they described Black Lives Matter uh, protesters as being thugs and parasites and maggots. We see bishops who declare that Black Lives Matter is against the nuclear family and therefore is unworthy of Catholic acceptance or approval. We've seen bishops and conservative websites say that, Catholic, that Black Lives Matter should be a matter of suspicion because it approves of gays and lesbians and transsexuals. We've also heard bishops and a church militant, another conservative website, denounce Black Lives Matter as simply a group of Marxist thugs. But this is in contradistinction to what they really believe. When we look at Black Lives Matter's commitments, we see that they believe that all Black lives are worthy of dignity, respect, and love, including Black queer and trans lives. And that shouldn't be a problem for Catholics because the Catechism of the Catholic Church in number 2358 calls for the acceptance of sexually minoritized people that you should be respected and treated with dignity, respect, and love. As far as a nuclear family is concerned, not all families are nuclear families. Families include grandparents raising grandchildren, aunts raising nieces, neighbor kids living together, and even gay relatives raising nephews and other relatives when their parents are unable. Black Lives Matter is for all families that nurture and support black and white children, not only for those families that conform to a standard that even the Holy Family doesn't meet. That the Holy Family is a little strange kind of family. It's not the nuclear, typical nuclear family. The question arises, why? Why is Catholic reception of Black Lives Matter so hostile, given that its fundamental aims are consistent with fundamental Catholic beliefs? I believe something more is at stake than simply a disagreement with confrontational protests or sporadic violence. Note, a recent study said that saw over 90% of Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful and nonviolent, something rarely noted. Something more fundamental is present than a disagreement over gender and sexuality issues. Rather, the discomfort and opposition, I believe, is rooted in a visceral discomfort in the white community over the fundamental aim and philosophy of the Black Lives Matter movement, namely its relentless critique 
an expose of anti-blackness, an anti-blackness that pervades American society and the consciousness of white Americans. This is the deepest reason for the muted and even hostile Catholic response to the Black Lives Matter movement. It raises uncomfortable questions as to who causes, allows, or permits the devaluation of Black lives to happen. Now to illustrate this, I turn to an analysis of the thought of Malcolm X and Thomas Merton's engagement with, with Malcolm's philosophy. Why these two people? Um, one is because the Black Lives Matter is a contemporary expression of convictions that Malcolm advocated in, during his life. Many in this movement take inspiration from his life and thoughts. And Merton was the rare white Catholic who seriously engaged Malcolm and those inspired by him. Noting the strengths and the limitations of Merton's engagement with Malcolm, I believe, will illuminate white hesitancy and rejection of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it will also point the way to a more fruitful, and I also believe a more justice producing and more ethical Catholic encounter with this movement. Now, there's not been much Catholic engagement with Malcolm X. In the Merton community, I note only two such engagements with Malcolm's thought, both by my colleague and friend, Dan Horan. More on that later. This semester, I'm teaching a course entitled Malcolm Martin Baldwin and the Church. My students, many of whom are graduates of Catholic education, all report that this is the first time they've encountered Malcolm or even read his famed autobiography. All they know about Malcolm is that he was bad, violent, hateful, unlike King, who is universally acclaimed as good and heroic. They are then astonished when they encounter his life and thought, and they wonder, why weren't we never taught this? And I answer, well, who benefits from your ignorance? The answer does not lie in his incendiary description of white people as being blonde hair, blue eyed pale skinned devils, admittedly not a complimentary description nor in his advocacy of violence because Malcolm never read, led a civil rights demonstration nor ever called for armed insurrection or revolution or even the use of violence as a means of social change. I believe it's because Malcolm and the worldview that informs his thinking represents a perspective that does not fit into the story that America likes to tell of itself. Malcolm represents and is informed by a stream of thought known as black nationalism. It's one of two major themes of thought and action present in the African-American experience. The first, integration is more familiar and it's the dominant stream. This is the one on the top, on the top here. That's the one we're all more familiar with. Black nationalism is the more underground subterranean stream, the one that most white Americans aren't that familiar with. Integrationism is familiar to us. It's the set of beliefs and practices that challenges the racism of US society through efforts that promote interracial justice, understanding, and social transformation. 
Its goal is the full inclusion of African-Americans and black peoples in all aspects of US life. Integrationist, the integrationist assumes the fundamental soundness of the American project. They engage in a constant home remodeling project, ever striving to make the national house a fit dwelling place and worthy of its fundamental blueprints. So the house is basically sound and foundation. They may want to knock down a few walls, but basically it's a home remodeling project is the analog for understanding the integrationist project. It's what we're familiar with. America's fundamentally a good place. It's got a few bumps along the road, but eventually we get it right. Black nationalism is very different. It admits of degrees and currents, but basically it's a set of beliefs or worldviews that responds to US racism by advocating the creation and the maintenance of social, economic, political, and religious institutions that are separate and distinct from those of white society. Nationalism subscribes to the belief that the solution to white supremacy, no, not simply racism, but white supremacy, lies in the cultivation of black pride, self-identity and self-determination, the ability to, to exercise responsible moral agency by controlling one's economic, political, social, cultural, and religious institutions. And so the development of black pride is, is, is a strategy that's adopted toward the goal of achieving a positive black identity. In other words, nationalists highlight black beauty, character, intelligence, talent, and ability, and ability. The ability of a community of people to define themselves independently of the pervasive negative evaluations that are found in white society. Its goal is the cultivation of self and communal love and dignity. Given the recalcitrance of US global white supremacy, Nationalists believe that these goals of self-identity and self-determination can only be achieved by through some distance from white society, some degree of institutional autonomy or psychic engagement is required. In Cone's language, James Cone, the founder of Black, the Black Liberation Theology, Black nationalists believe that an America committed to white supremacy can never be home for Black people. Therefore, nationalists evolve at some degree of distance or autonomy from white society is required for psychic health and emotional sanity. We can see then why nationalism is disparaged in white society. Nationalism at its core, James Cone avows, is fundamentally a vote of no confidence in America's will to justice. Either because white Americans are either unable to live with blacks as fully equal people. This would be the position of the nation of Islam and during Malcolm's early phase of his involvement with that movement, they believe that whites were incapable of goodness or they are unwilling to live with blacks as fully equal persons and participants. 
Here, they're not inherently deficient, but whites are morally deficient. They could accept blacks as equal, but they choose not to. And this is going to be Malcolm's position after his journey to Mecca. We can see why nationalism is the subterranean stream in American thought, because it clashes with the country's self-image and under self-understanding. It troubles the narrative that the country tells about its troubled history of race. Namely that, yes, there've been a few bumps in the road, a few bad actors and a couple of rough places and terrible years. But they believe that the country's ideals are sound and achieving progressive realization. That fits with the worldview of integration. But as the noted essayist Tanahisi Kota observes, black nationalists have perceived something unmentionable about America that integrationists dare not acknowledge. That white supremacy is not merely the work of hot-headed demagogues or a matter of false consciousness. Rather, it's a force that's so fundamental to America that it's difficult to imagine the country without it. Malcolm X is informed by this stream, this tradition of black nationalism. His ministry, and I use that word not only because it's its own self-description, but it underscores how Malcolm's thought and activism are in fact faith-based. His ministry exemplifies this nationalist current. He's not so much concerned with the transformation of US society, direct, society directly. In fact, he has serious doubts about its ability and willingness to entertain fundamental social transformation. Rather, Malcolm is preoccupied with the inner emancipation of persons of color from the debilitating internalization of negative characterizations of their beauty, talent, and intelligence. He's also preoccupied with the relentless unmasking of the depths of white supremacy. Instead of defending the fundamental goodness of the American project, he wants to unmask its presence and its pervasiveness in American society. Quoting from one of his speeches in the collection Malcolm X Speaks, he, he writes, and I quote here, excuse me, I'll get my glasses. America is a very serious problem. America's problem is us. We're her problem. The only reason she has a problem is she, she doesn't want us here. And every time you look at yourself, be you black, brown, red, or yellow, a so-called Negro, you represent a person who poses such a serious problem for America because you're not wanted. Once you face this as a fact, then you can start plotting a course that will make you appear intelligent rather than unintelligent. In another place, he tells his supporters to, re, to not be deceived by efforts to pass civil rights legislation. He points out that people who come from the Iron, country, Iron Curtain countries who are supposedly enemies of the United States, no civil rights legislation is needed to bring them into the mainstream of the American way of life. Then he said, you, should ask, you and I should ask, stop and ask ourselves, why is it needed for us? 
They're actually slapping you and me in the face when they pass a civil rights bill. It's not an honor, it's a slap in the face. They're telling you that they have to legislate before you can get it, which in essence means they're telling you that since you don't have it, yet you're born here, there must be something about you that makes you different from everybody else who's born here. He also relentlessly critiques the fundamental symbol system of normatively white images of the sacred and how these normatively white images of God, Jesus, Mary, and the angels, how they affect a dual brainwashing, duping black people into believing in their inferiority and duping white people into believing in their superiority. This leads them to an impassioned rejection of the Christian religion as being incompatible with black aspirations for dignity and equality. He says it has hindered where it might've helped. It's been evasive when it was morally bound to be forthright. It separated believers on the basis of color, although it has declared its mission to be the universal brotherhood under Jesus Christ. Christian love is the white man's love for himself and his race. After his exodus from the nation of Islam and his subsequent embrace of Orthodox Islam, Malcolm changed his characterizations of white people. He no longer believed them incapable of moral goodness. He now believed that there were a few, a few who were sincere in their desire for justice. But he believed that they were few. Few he believed would have the strength and the courage to question the white supremacist malformation they received and acknowledge how warped their perception of black people in American life were. He writes, why here in America, the seeds of racism are so deeply rooted in the white people collectively. Their belief that they are superior in some way so deeply rooted that these things are in the national white subconscious Many whites are even actually unaware of their own racism until they face some test and then their racism emerges in one form or another. The pictures you see here are of Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper who last May in Central Park, Christian Cooper, a bird watcher, asked Amy Cooper to leash her dog as was required by the park regulations. Amy Cooper said, if you don't leave me alone, I'm going to call the police and tell them a black man is threatening me. And she does exactly that. Amy Cooper is a good white person. After all, it came out that she voted for Hillary Clinton. And yet, when push came to shove, she utter word, utters words as if she were tutored by the KKK. The fundamental problem, and Malcolm, and we should note that Malcolm is a forerunner of what we now call unconscious racism and implicit bias. This is the deepest reason why Malcolm and Black Lives Matter are deeply resisted in American society and the Catholic Church. Both forthrightly declared that religious institutions are complicit in the country's racial dysfunction 
and both declare that superficial efforts at reform are inadequate. The fundamental problem both declare is the unwillingness to perceive black people as full human beings who are worthy of dignity and love. There is a lack of will to achieve full equality, especially if it entails relinquishment of white privilege and preferred status. Now let's turn to Merton. And I can hear some in the Merton community sigh, finally, this is what I came to hear. Well, yeah, maybe. You're gonna see Merton and Malcolm are kind of on the same page on a couple of things here. Um, but you know, if you believe that, that's a huge part of the problem. Merton was able to speak prophetically to white Catholics and to white Americans about racial justice only because he first listened to black people speak of their experience. He wrote his marvelous essays on race only after a deep reading and meditation upon the works of Malcolm and Baldwin, only after listening to the anguish of black Catholics who visited and wrote to him of their experiences in the church, only after engaging the speeches of Martin Luther King, only after reading the works of black power activists. Merton wrote only after engaging the, the black experience and doing so in its entirety and not only the thinkers with whom he agreed. Now he had limitations in its approach. He had limitations of what he could hear and absorb. I'll get to that in a moment, but his penetrating insights emerged only after he first listened as carefully and attentively as he could, allowing himself to be taught and indeed re-educated. Treating Merton only now after an exposition of Black Lives Matter, Black nationalism and Malcolm X is an essential part of Merton's legacy. This is what Merton's, this is what we should be doing. It's also an enduring challenge to the Merton community and to white Catholicism. So what did Merton hear and learn? The first and most important lesson is a, and a conviction from which he never wavered, he never wavered, was that racism is a white problem. Merton was moved and disturbed by the assertion of the black of the African-American author Richard Wright. There is no Negro problem in the United States. There's only a white problem. I read Merton's racial corpus as a continuing wrestling with the implications of the statement. A statement made not only by Wright, but by other black thinkers like Baldwin, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King. What is the white problem that is at the root of American racial injustice? The core of Merton's response lies in his observation that as long as white society persists in, in clinging to its present condition and to its own image as the only acceptable reality, then the problem will remain without reasonable solution. The core problem then for Merton is that white Americans in general and white Catholics in, in particular believe in, their, in the superiority of their racial identity and act as if blacks were simply an inferior kind of white person. 
Merton is scathing in both naming this reality and denouncing it as contrary to authentic Catholic and Christian belief. He writes, and this is on the screen, the actions and attitudes of white Christians all without exception contain a basic and axiomatic assumption of white superiority. It is simply taken for granted that since the white man is superior, the Negro wants to be a white man. And here I think is where all Christians, including Catholics are innocently, no doubt, doing the greatest harm to Christian truth. Wow, he sounds a lot like Malcolm X. Note how opposed Merton is to any hint of paternalism or normative identification of Catholicism with European culture or persons. Merton espouses the radical belief that black and white and red and yellow and brown are equally legitimate expressions of humanity. And thus what is needed is a transformation of white racial identity from assumed superiority. A transformation that Merton says will entail a Paschal experience of dying and rising, of dying to a false self and rising to a new authentic identity. Merton evolved that the protests of the civil rights movement were a moment of kairos for white people and that blacks were salvific agents for white conversion and metanoia. Through these protests, Merton believed that white people were being offered a chance at a fuller and more true identity, a liberation from the false identities they imposed upon themselves by adopting a spurious superiority. But yet he speaks of the power of African-American agency in words that carry paschal significance. He says, in all literal truth, if they white Americans heard the message of the Negro children who were protesting, they would cease to be the people they were. They would have to die to everything that is familiar and secure. For Merton, the journey to racial, journey, racial justice is a paschal journey a call to die to a false and idolatrous social identity based upon racial superiority and white privilege. I can imagine Merton seeing Black Lives Matter protests and saying that if we took that message seriously, white Americans would have to cease to be the people they are. Now, so far, so good. It would seem that Merton would be sympathetic to the perspective of Malcolm and the Black Lives Matter movement. But when one turns to Merton's specific engagement with Malcolm's thinking, as seen in his review of the autobiography, one hears some notes of hesitancy. To be sure, Merton states that there is an element of truth in Malcolm's inexorable refusal to accept any profession of sincere friendship, interest, and compassion from any white man. Merton says that such declarations are right. He's right to be suspicious because they are, because the white man can't change his distorted view of the relationship between the races. 
Merton even states that white liberals have a core belief that racial equality belief is the belief that black people should welcome the chance to join the superior race. The problem arises because Merton seems to be unaware of how he himself has been deeply malformed by the same condition that he condemns. He criticizes the first period of Malcolm's public life, declaring that he belonged to a ghetto religion that hates white people, overlooking entirely Malcolm's concern for the inner psychic and spiritual damage suffered by black people in white society. He chides Malcolm for embracing an anti-Christian doctrine. He never considers the merits of Malcolm's critique of white complicity and racial supremacy. He accuses Malcolm of adopting a policy of racial segregation, ignoring or not understanding the distinction that Malcolm makes again and again between imposed segregation between unequals and voluntary separation between social equals for the purposes of you know, black self-determination. He praises Malcolm after his conversion for abandoning his previous, and here I quote, symbiotic obsessions with his ghetto milieu without appreciating how his repeated use of ghetto reinforces the very white stereotypes he accuses whites of putting black people into. Despite his overall admiration for Malcolm's sincerity and courage, one cannot but conclude that Merton finds Malcolm wanting precisely because he doesn't conform to certain expectations and that there are certain facets of Malcolm's thought that Merton cannot hear. He engages Malcolm and the subsequent black power movement only somewhat appreciatively and only up to a point, but why? Merton gives us a clue found on his final essay on race, where he reiterate a point he makes throughout his work, the difficulty of white people to genuinely hear people they unconsciously believe to be their inferiors. He writes, I am personally convinced that most white people who think themselves very fair to the Negro show by the way they imagine themselves fair that they consider the Negro an inferior type of human being, a sort of minor, and that their fairness consists in giving him certain benefits provided he keeps his place, a place they've allocated to him as an inferior. This state of mind is at the root of the trouble of the Negro. It's one of the reasons why the Negro is finally in desperation, becomes so hostile toward whites because he wants to bring this fact out into the open. He wants to push things to the point where no one can any longer pretend. Burton's absolutely spot on in my opinion here. But the problem here is that Merton seems to be unaware that he himself is trapped in the distorted white mirror that he describes so perceptive, so perceptive, so perceptively. Yeah. Now here I am in strong agreement with the insights offered by Dan Haran. In writing about Merton and, Mal Merton and Malcolm, he talks about the limits of Merton's white socialization. And Dan hits it on the nail when he says, 
it would appear that Merton's own white self-criticality was limited by his own socialization, which despite his best intentions, nevertheless prevented him at many times from recognizing his own whiteness as a marker of race itself. At times, Merton clearly goes out of his way to educate himself, but his overall writing on the importance of whites hearing the voices of people of color is ambivalent at times. It's ambivalent in terms of whose responsibility or problem it is to learn and to be educated. I think Dan has hit the nail on the head. Merton is far ahead of most Christians of his time and of most Christians even today. And yet there are limits. But paradoxically, far from being a weakness of Merton, his lack or inability shows just how right Malcolm and Black Lives Matter are in their analyses about the depths of white supremacy and the deformations of white society. The reason why Catholic engagement with Black Lives Matter has been so pathetic and anemic, if not stridently hostile, hostile, is that it cuts too close to the bone. Black Lives Matter unmasks the Catholic Church and white Christianity as being white racist institutions. Merton, Malcolm X, and Black Lives Matter all agree on this. It is impossible for white people to love black lives as long as they believe that they are white, that is superior. Black lives are only, will only truly matter when white people can authentically love black people as they are, not as white people think they are or need them to be. And Merton shows how difficult that summons truly is. I'm nearing the end of my reflections, and so I want to return to where I began. At its core, Black Lives Matter is about love. It originated in sending love notes to Black people under relentless siege. Black Lives Matter is about the social, cultural, and spiritual challenges of love, of loving our dark-skinned neighbors as God loves us. And if we truly love, then we will work for justice because justice is what love sounds like in public. Justice is public love talk. Love reorients the whole question of Catholic and Christian engagement with Black Lives Matter. The question no longer is, do I approve of their methods? but why can't I hear what they're saying? And am I willing to listen to the beloved black soul even when listening takes me to a place I'd rather not go? Talk of love always sounds mushy and sentimental and sweet. And that's why I'm currently preoccupied with trying to formulate a critical ethics of black love. That project's far from complete, you can invite me back next year when I hopefully have something more to share with you. But I offer these final thoughts. As you see on the screen, 
Um, I confess to a fascination with the British royal family. I know it's, they're the ultimate symbols of white colonization, but that helps prove my point. I was riveted by Oprah Winfrey's masterful interview of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. There's so much to unpack there. But what I want to lift up is Harry's admission that he was blind to the depths of British racism and white supremacy. He shared how he has lived and worked in Africa and long possessed a, a passion for its people and a desire to better their lives. But it wasn't until he loved a woman of color. And as he said, saw the world as she walked in it and as she experienced it, that he could see what was always there and see the depth of black humiliation and white silence about it. The New York Times this morning reports, back in 2005, when Harry wore a Nazi uniform to a costume party, it would have been impossible to predict, to predict his trajectory. By last fall, however, his awakening was well underway with him talking about how his marriage to Markle immediately changed his understanding of race. I had no idea he existed, he said, of unconscious bias in British GQ. And then sad as it is to say, it took me many, many years to realize it, especially then living a day or a week in my wife's shoes. He continued in his, in his interview with Oprah saying, and I guess one of the most telling and saddest parts was that over 70 female members of parliament, both conservative and labor, came out and called out the colonial undertones of articles and headlines written, by Ma written about Megan. And yet no one from my family ever said anything. That hurts. Harry evidence is what I call, have called transformative love, that insight into white racism that emerges as one shares so deeply in the life of a person of color that one takes on their perspective and even a share in their suffering. Note how this love, this love for the body of a person of color awakens him to see not only her direct suffering, but it's linkages to the enduring colonial undertones that cast black bodies as savage, primitive, exotic, dangerous, and unworthy of love, and certainly not worthy of the love of the most privileged of white Britons. And note how this love opens his eyes to the complicity of his own family, not only in his wife's suffering, but in the maintenance of colonization and its enabling racism through their permissive silence. Harry sees, then he acts. A journey far from complete, but one empowered by love, by a love of blackness. This isn't the Disney fairy tale kind of sentimental love that we saw on their wedding day. 
a spectacle planned for millions, hundreds of millions. The story of a commoner capturing the, the heart of a prince. This is not Valentine's Day love. This is a harsh and dreadful love. One that inspires the speaking of difficult truths, even at the cost of ripping apart national narratives and enduring social derision and family ostracism. Only that kind of love will inspire and provoke and provoke a more adequate and moral white engagement with Black Lives Matter. At the height of the protest last summer, I wrote a reflection that was published in Political Theology that conclude with these words. Anti-Blackness is a spiritual malady, a soul sickness, an interior malformation of a magnitude for which we lack words, an affliction that can only be healed when we learn how to love Blackness, Black bodies, Black people. Only this kind of love, a radical love of, for, by, and with Black people can make of this old world a new world, a world where Black lives matter, where Black lives are sacred, where Black lives breathe free. I thank you for listening. I look forward to our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father Brian. That was both prophetic and persuasive. It was touching in ways that it's hard to put into words. So. Thank you for that. We have more questions than we'll ever be able to ask you in this setting. So that's a sign of how engaged people were. And uh, it's unfortunate that we have so many good questions that we can't answer them all. So I'm gonna to try to combine some. Mm -hmm. uh, you did obviously reference the, the 60s, which some of us who are older can certainly remember the civil rights movement and all. Um, how would you, if you want to say any more in a kind of comparative way between what happened in the 60s and what you see going on with the Black Lives Matter, and I especially would be intrigued, how do you see hope for what's currently going on to uh, take us on down the road towards where uh, you can imagine us going? Mm. Wow, those are really big questions right there. Uh, let's see. I think when I think we're looking at the civil rights movement, it's properly understood in American society that the civil rights movement was about changing legislation. Um, and that was indeed part of the civil rights movement, but we have a very incomplete understanding of it. The civil rights movement toward its end was also about um, interagency as well. As Martin Luther King said that the um, greatest accomplishment of the civil rights movement was that it taught um, black people to walk with their um, with upright with their back with, with, with their backs squared and no one can ride your back and if your back isn't bent. 
So I think the difference between Black Lives Matter and the civil rights movement is that Black Lives Matter is raising questions of fundamental social change. In other words, we hear the slogans, um, we need to defund the police, we need police reform. That's only part of it. What they're really about is interrogating the, the, the ideology of white supremacy and the unconscious internalization of that ideology in American society. And I think it's also important to understand that they're, in, they're interested in this kind of inner work of transformation, both in black people and in white people. In other words, I think Black Lives Matter and the protests are saying something fundamentally different in that is they want to finally look at what is going on in American society that creates the conditions for the atrocities that we see. They're relentless in pointing out that we're not looking at isolated incidents. We're not looking at a Minneapolis aberration with George Floyd or a Louisville aberration with Breonna Taylor or uh, a New York aberration when we look at Eric Gardner. We're saying that all of these taking place across our country are raising fundamental questions about the foundation of the country and that we need to look, not engage in simply a home remodeling project as integrationists would, would argue, we need to repair the cracks in the foundation itself. I think that shows its kind of linkages to the past. In other words, I think that no one would say that the civil, that there are a rejection of the civil rights movement, but they are saying that it's a limitation of it. There's a limitation that was there, or at least a limitation in terms of the way in which it's properly uh, presented. In terms of hope, I think the hope is that this summer, something not seen in previous Black Lives Matter protests, they were truly multiracial and multi-ethnic in ways that they weren't prior, previously. That to me is a hopeful sign, especially among the younger generation. I think older white Americans still have grave concerns when they hear Black Lives Matter. I think a younger generation at least is open to the possibility that there is a real problem here that must be addressed. Um, it's still too soon to know whether this is going to be just simply a moment or whether it's going to be a true movement. Um, but at least that's a hopeful sign that fact that for young white people, when it's seeing an openness to the fundamental message of, of some needed transformation that we didn't see prior in, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Thank you. Again, combining a couple of questions. We heard some, uh, we heard multiple references in your uh, presentation tonight on listening. Uh, for example, that Merton was able to perhaps do what he did after he listened to the people he was reading. I'm so fascinated with language of listening that you offered. Interested in how can listening be transformative and how might I or others who are on this tonight learn to listen better so that we might be transformed. 
Uh, you learn to listen better by making the decision that you're going to listen better. Okay. Um, it's like use the analogy of a spouse. I mean, I'm not married, but I, I run a very good authority um, that when someone says they're not listening to you or you're not hearing me, you've got a couple of choices to make. You can say, oh, I am listening to you. I hear exactly what you're saying. Or you can say, um, okay, you're right. I'm not getting it. Let's try to get this. Say it to me again. Um, I want to get this. I'm, I'm sorry that I'm not getting this. How do we learn to listen better? I think we have to make our minds up that we want to. And, we, and that what we're hearing is worth listening to. And that's a fundamental decision. That's an act of the will. And both Merton and Malcolm were in agreement with this, that the fundamental problem is that white people, consciously or unconsciously, don't believe that Black people have anything to say that's worth listening to, especially if what they're listening to challenges them and calls them to change and they don't like what they're hearing. And so how do we learn to listen better? I think we have to... We have to make the decision that it's that we're we're going to do it. I mean, it's it's it it sounds simple, but it's not that hard. And it and it comes to raising the question, and I sorry, this sometimes when I do marital counseling. I mean, do you want to hear what she's saying? Do you want to hear what he's saying? If you want to hear it, then you're gonna demonstrate it by your actions. And if you love, then you're really going to hang in there and do the work of listening. And this is something that Malcolm and Merton and the Black Lives Matter movement are talking about that one of the social expressions of love is our willingness to actually listen. And that sounds you know, trite, but I get emails all the time. After I give talks like this, I get emails all the time. Some will be appreciative, but some will be like, you know, why do you hate white people? And I said, how do you listen to what I've said and you get that? <laughs> but, I, but I mean, just this week, I got an email from a, um, a college student who studies at a Jesuit institution, I won't name it, who had to read something I wrote, you know, as a, as a class assignment. And he well, impassionate or write to me and wanted to know how could I, as a Catholic priest, hate white people so, so, so desperately? And I wanted to say, did you really read and listen to what I said? But because what I said made him uncomfortable, he stopped listening. And I say he because he signed his name. He stopped listening. So how do we learn to listen? We make the decision to listen. And we make the decision to listen even when it makes us uncomfortable, as Merton did. He made the decision to listen to Baldwin, to listen to Merton, to listen to Black Catholics. I mean, it, 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 sounds, it sounds simple, but it, it's, it's really... A, a deep, deep discipline of, of deciding that what I'm hearing is, is, is a call that I must honor and listen, e listen to, even if it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. All simple things are not easy, though, eh? 
Um, yeah. Maybe I'll, I will follow that up with an, another um, facet of what you were talking about tonight. So maybe a couple more questions, this one and then the final one. Um, some folks are really intrigued by this notion of the, of the racial transformation, the Paschal journey. I mean, mm. We're heading into that season here as a mm. church. Mm -hmm. Be really fascinating to hear you talk a little more, unpack the idea of a Paschal journey, mm. um, which is hard for me to imagine. A lot of us wanting to sign up and, and you know, get on board for that one very quickly. So um, how, how do you imagine that? And, um, you know, as an African-American, maybe uh, counsel for those of us like myself, who at least in my mind intellectually would say, I think I understood what you were saying. Now, now what? The Paschal journey? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Um, the cross is such an inconvenience for Christians, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. The cross is such an inconvenience for us. I mean, we are better at um, celebrating conversion journeys and actually undergoing them. Um, I had to write a reflection for the Ignatian Solidarity Network for um, they're doing a series of Lenten meditations and it gave me Good Friday. And my Good Friday meditation, I talk about how the cross is the price of integrity. The cross is the price of integrity. I shared in that um, small essay that um, I remember once when I was upset at some of the hostility and opposition and the lack of support I was receiving um, for my activism. And I was pouring out my frustrations and my anger to my spiritual director. My spiritual director listened compassionately and patiently. And then she softly asked, how much is your integrity worth to you? And that question seared me and it's become imprinted on my soul. That the price of integrity is the cross. And that means that as Christians, especially when it comes to race and especially for white Christians, we have to understand that our socialization has imprinted upon us a lot of unconscious racial bias and lies. One of my white students said, when you learn African-American history, it means you have to unlearn a lot of white history. And I looked at him and said, 15 points for Gryffindor. Yes, exactly. What, what does the Paschal journey mean? It means the willingness to unlearn a lot of what we thought we knew. And one of the things we have to unlearn is this myth that America has always been the land of the free and the home of the brave. It means we have to unlearn this myth of make America great again, because they ask the question, when has it ever been great and great for whom? The Paschal journey means unlearning. Malcolm X put it this way, 
we have to be untaught before we can be taught. We have to unlearn the false narratives in order to learn the truth. And we only undergo the Paschal journey when we come to a place where we realize that if we don't undertake that journey, we're going to lose something that we're not prepared to live without. That's what Harry confronted with Megan, that if he didn't make the decision to see life from her end and to honor her pain, he was gonna lose something he was not prepared to live without. It's the reason why I make the choices for integrity even when they lead me to very difficult relationships with my superiors because I'm not prepared to live without my integrity. We only undertake the Paschal journey when we realize that if we don't undergo that journey, we're going to lose something that we're not prepared to live without. When, the, when that cost becomes too great, it's only then that we embrace the cross. And we also do it with God's help too. Thank you so much. I'd like to ask one last one, and perhaps this one is uh, a sequel to the one you just shared with us. How has hope sustained you in your personal journey as a African-American Catholic priest and professor? Or maybe, how do you sustain hope? Wow, someday, sir, that's not a good question to ask. Um, <clears throat> hope is always a work in progress. It's something that's never, um, it's never something that's over and done. I would say that what sustains my hope, a couple things. One is the love and support of family and dear friends. That sustains me. Um, what sustains me is um, being in a supportive environment at Fordham where they've made it clear to me that no matter how much trouble I get into, I have a job. So that's, <laughs> so that's, that's something as a Catholic priest, you can't always take for granted. Um, you gotta be, let's be honest about that. Um, saying the things I say um, attracts some share of opposition. Well, a lot of opposition, frankly. But what sustains my hope? You know what sustains my hope lately. Um, I have a discipline of centering prayer every morning. Um, for um, a period of 40 minutes, I just enter into a very deep contemplative place. And I begin by talking uh, the invocation of a mantra. And lately for Lent, my mantra has been, I want to be a co-creator of God's just future. What's become apparent to me is that God's just future, the reign of God, is not only a future reality, it's one that's already present even now, even though it's incomplete. And our responsibility, our summons, 
is to be co-creators of that justice, which is of future assurement. It's, it's, a, it's kind of like, you, we have to give our linear understandings of time. In other words, we think that we hope for a future. No, it's the future that's already present. We have to talk about the future present tense. And for me, what sustains my hope is in those moments of quiet when I realize that through who I am and what I do and how I teach, I am making a difference. And I am witnessing, I'm bringing about the future, but I'm doing it even now. And that kind of insight that's, that comes from and is nurtured by that daily discipline of centering prayer is what keeps me going. Um, even when the way is difficult and even when the cross looms sometimes more starkly than um, the resurrection. But it's the conviction that all of us are called to be witnesses of this reign of God, this radical community of inclusion that's not only a future hope, but it's already breaking now in our midst. And I can't prove that. You can't prove hope. All you can do is witness to it. And when we witness to it, we inspire others to be hopeful and their hope then feeds mine. We create this feedback loop of hope, which was another way of putting it is we call it the communion of saints. And that's ultimately what the church is really all about. We're called to be this feedback loop of hope. And that's what sustains us in working for this, the greater realization of God's inclusive reign of justice. Best answer I can give you right now. Well, Father Brian, I don't know whether I could take any more now. Thank you so much for both your your prophetic word and the poignancy. Um, I was touched, and I'm sure I speak on behalf of everybody who's still still with us. So, thank you so much, mm, Sister Teresa. It's been a wonderful time. So, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I'm deeply grateful, Father Brian, for your words, for your sharing of yourself with us this evening. And I know it's made a great impression on many people. I want to thank Peter Cunningham and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union for providing the technical support this evening. Also, thanks to Ellen Culp for moderating the questions, to Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, and to Mark Mead, who makes them available as podcasts. Registration is now open for the April 13th webinar, which will feature Dr. Kathleen Degnan of the Congregation of Notre Dame. The title of her presentation is Overshadowed, Thomas Merton and the Cloud of Unknowing. So for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you in April. <laughs>